0: Hello, and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today I'm joined by co-host Kevin Lavangi and we talk to Tyler Wenzel, military historian and legal scholar. This is part two of our conversation with Wenzel. In part one, he talked to us about Ed Cecil Smith, the subject of his forthcoming book, and an important Canadian communist figure and volunteer and a commanding officer in the international brigades. In part two, he talks to us about a bunch of scattered things, including the Standard Theatre, where Eight Men Speak briefly ran in the 1930s, um, and which was the subject of much police violence. He also talks to us about the Foreign Enlistment Act and the military history and legal side of his research. So let's get started. First off, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, so my name is Tyler Wenzel. I'm a researcher based out of Toronto, Ontario. My interests are largely oriented around the Spanish Civil War and the military and legal and labor dimensions
2: of it. Does your, does your work ever raise eyebrows politically in terms of your, your research interests?
1: Yes, constantly. So the, the volunteers in the international brigades that came from it came from a range of political backgrounds, but the Communist International and the Communist Party of Canada definitely played a leading role. And the characters I'm interested in were were card-carrying members. So even though that's very far from my own political beliefs, some people will assume that if you write about it, you, you are by necessity a Marxist-Leninist. And on the other side of things, when I am working with people who are... Uh, who are of the Marxist-Leninist persuasion, they sometimes get a bit agitated with the nature of my research because I'm so interested in Russian influence and the Communist International's role and the Communist Party of Canada's role uh, because they sort of see it as a slight against the legitimate grievances of the working class at the time by, as if I'm implying that the only reason any of this happened was because of uh, the Red Menace, which, of course, is not the point of the research. So I get it from both ends of the political spectrum.
2: I find it so funny in terms of the the particular, like, dance that happens around, like, Soviet influence on the Spanish Civil War. Because depending on your, your political leaning, it's it's either, you know... Uh, yes, there was a fair bit of influence and it was a, a tragedy or or whatever. or yes, it happened, and it was a good thing. and let me tell you yeah. why. <laughs> like there's always it's, 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 it's very funny on who depending on who you talk to what what the what the emphasis is. so yeah, it can, it can be a little sticky at times.
1: And the studying of Cecil Smith and William Crame, who are on different ends of that divide mm-hmm. makes it very interesting. Like William Crane was interrogated by. Russian-trained and actual Russian agents in Barcelona in May 1937, and Edward Cecil Smith received much of his training from the Red Army while in Spain. So those two people would give you very different points of view on the role of the Soviet Union in the conflict.
0: On the podcast, we often talk about our ignorance of military history, uh, and we were wondering how you would characterize kind of the historiography concerning Canada and the Spanish Civil War. Is the war as much of interest to military historians as it is to kind of cultural historians?
1: I would say no, it isn't. The historiography on the military history of the Spanish Civil War, at least as in as much as Canadians were involved, is sort of paltry compared to the cultural historian historiography. Yeah, there's lots of great work that's very very high level, um, but when you want to get into the nitty gritty of what the international brigades did and how they operated, things thin out pretty quickly. I think this is in large part because um, the type of documents that military historians really need to do their job. We're really, really reliant on war diaries and memoirs by the commanders and official documents that spell out exactly who was where, when, and why. We don't we don't have that with Spain. We have um, some records that were evacuated to Moscow during, at the very end of the war, but historians didn't have that until relatively recently. So most of what we know about the, the military action comes from the volunteers themselves. And the problem with that, although there's tons of information we get that's extremely helpful, is the interviews. The Canadian experience is largely because of a series of interviews that were done in the 60s by Mac Reynolds, which fed into Victor Hoare's book, but Victor Hoare was an English professor at the University of Western Ontario, so there was a lot of the military side of things that he either didn't understand or wasn't interested in. I've gone back and listened to the tapes, and there's, there's some mistranslations of military stuff from what he heard to what he wrote. There's also the fact that he didn't interview any senior commanders. The only senior-ish person in the International Brigades that was interviewed for that study was uh, Lionel Edwards, who was a company commander, but only for the first day of one operation. Other than that, they're interviewing relatively junior soldiers, which doesn't make their story less valuable, but they were at the coalface. So, they didn't necessarily know the big picture plan, the big picture operation. So, to, you'll, you'll see in my, my book about Ever Cecil Smith, like some of the footnotes are just gigantic as you have to wade through what all these different people said and how that relates to the map and what this record indicates, and then give my tiebreaker about what I think actually happened.
0: Mm-hmm. But wouldn't that also have to do with the fact that there weren't many Canadians in like higher ranking positions?
1: in the war? Absolutely. Cecil Smith wrote a report when they were in Rappole, awaiting repatriation, about that there was, I think there's two factors to it. One was that the Canadian party didn't send senior leaders, period. Uh, Whereas the Americans and the Brits, they would send people who were a, a little bit higher up in the party hierarchy. So there was that effect. So they, the junior member, junior leaders of the Communist Party, were sometimes passed over for appointments in the international brigades. Maurice Constant, for instance, uh, he was the second in command of the brigade scouts, and that should have been a senior leadership appointment. That should have been an officer appointment, but he was given the rank of corporal, uh, cabo. So there was this phenomenon that Canadians were not getting promoted. They thought it was because they were being passed over for American and British communists because their parties were more influential, uh, which is certainly possible. And although the propaganda on the home front was that the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion was Canadian through and through, uh, in terms of its leadership, at least, it, it really wasn't. When it was founded, it had one Canadian officer, Nilo Makala, who was killed, Edward Cecil Smith became the commander, but most of the command leadership throughout the war were American. Almost all of the commissars were American, and towards the end of the war, they were getting more and more Spanish leadership. So that's definitely a factor as well, that there weren't many people around for Hoare or Reynolds to interview in terms of Canadian senior leaders. And it didn't help that Cecil Smith was dead by the time they had started their study. Right. Yeah, absolutely.
2: That that does kind of tie into, I guess, our our next question, which is, how would you characterize like the military efficacy of the international brigades in general and the Canadians in particular? I always think about how the the Republicans were really starting from scratch, especially in terms of the Spanish army that largely went over to Franco. So how valuable was the influx of like motivated international soldiers in a war where geography determines sides as much as ideology?
1: Yeah, it's a really, really good point. It's it's very easy to try and compare apples to oranges when looking at a, a force like the International Brigades. It's a completely unfair comparison to compare a brigade in, you know, the 15th International Brigade to an equivalent sized element in the British Expeditionary Force. The International Brigades, like you said, were completely made from scratch, and they were fighting the nationalists who were a professional force who had existed more or less intact for a long time, operating with a great deal of -of state-of-the-art German and Italian equipment, aircraft, tanks, etc. So they started standing still. They started from nothing, and I think the, the presence of the international volunteers certainly helped by the Spanish Republic time. It gave them at least a decent enough force that was able to check Franco's advance on Madrid in the early days of the war, as they transitioned from the popular front forces to a more organized, um, quote unquote, professional army. The problem, of course, was, although it's an incredible achievement to build the international brigades at all, and many of them did have military experience, Very few of them had senior leadership experience or staff officer experience. So you see that pretty consistently, uh, that they had a lot of trouble with supply and planning and organization. Not for lack of trying, but those are the sorts of activities that you need a degree of uh, professional experience to do a good job of. It didn't help that they were also materially poor for much of the war. There was also this pervasive culture of what they called rank and fileism, and that rejected the idea of permanent leadership and traditional military discipline. So that's understandable given the political backgrounds of many of the volunteers, but it did make discipline out of the line very difficult. When they were on the line, it's incredible to see the circumstances they maintained their cohesion through. But when they were off of the line, there were considerable disciplinary problems. There's no doubting, though, that uh, the volunteers were all fiercely brave. They lived and fought in difficult conditions that would have caused mutinies pretty much anywhere else. It was really their their political motivation, their sense of desire that got them there in the first place, I think, that, that held them together throughout the whole war.
2: Right. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. The, the distinction between the... The you know, on the line and off the line or in line, uh, again, military history, um, <laughs> the, the distinction between that and, and, you know, at rest and discipline there is, is really interesting because yeah. that that does come up from time to time throughout the other histories. It's just the the, the lack of lack of understanding of, of or lack of belief in the necessity of a of like strict hierarchical structure that did sort of seem to give, give away when battle was actually going I thought that was really interesting just in terms of like there's an admission of of necessity of that kind of structure.
1: Yeah, the the, the rank and fileism phenomenon, it seemed to be more prevalent in the Canadian volunteers than other organizations, uh, at least among the Canadian organizations. Uh, Cecil Smith seemed to think that that was largely because the Canadians were more rural in nature. Right whereas the British and American volunteers tended to be from a large city like New York or an industrial center like Manchester. Uh, So they were more accustomed to working in a disciplined party unit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Canadian volunteers were, they may have been a member of the Communist Party, but they were just as likely to have been influenced by the political ideals of the Wobblies. Yeah. So they had a much more decentralized approach to how things should work. And that sort of pervaded their their activities in, in the military.
2: Well, and even the distinction between being a member of the industrial proletariat in in Manchester, like you said, and being a lumberjack in northern Ontario. Like you're the way in which you would live your life and and the way in which you would be accustomed to kind of operating in in hierarchies would be so different that that it's yeah, it's definitely easy to see why you wouldn't if you were, you know, used to living in the woods in a cabin with 60 other guys and very little supervision, (laughs) you would have a hard time adjusting to military life.
1: Absolutely.
0: So our next question is about the collections of the testimonies that ended up in the Library in Canada fonds. We're wondering like what you know about this collection, like were these collected for an official history of the Macpabs that never ended up being written or?
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. the, Lincoln Battalion and the British Battalion wrote an official history and got it published in 1939. The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion was also supposed to have an official history. Uh, Maurice Constant was the the head of the editorial commission and Cecil Smith was going to be the author. And in April, most of the Macpaps, I should say, got back in February 1939. In April, Constant sent out a letter form letter to everyone saying, send us your, send us your copies of your diary, send us your reminiscences, we're putting together an official history. Those documents all got bundled and given to Cecil Smith, and he was supposed to write the history, but he never did. So the best clue I have as to why he never did was a note that uh, Jim Higgins wrote and his daughter, Janet Higgins, found in his collection. She's working on a, a memoir of his. Where he basically said, I've been corresponding with Cecil Smith, and he says not to send in any more stuff. There's a dispute with the party leadership. Uh, The party wants him to write something that's a little uh, too, too rosy, a little bit too much of a work of propaganda. That's not what he wants. So we don't know the nature of that dispute, but it was such that he never finished it. But he held on to all his notes. When Cecil Smith died in the early 60s, uh, Victor Horst started writing his book shortly after that, and the party actually came to the Cecil Smith family home with a truck and asked his wife, Lillian Googe, to hand over the documents that Cecil Smith had still had in his collection. Lillian did not want to hand over these documents presumably from conversations that she had with her husband. she understood that it was he still feared that the party would uh, warp the history he didn't want that so instead of handing those documents over to the party she had them donated to library and archives canada so that donation was made late 60s early 70s and they've been there ever since
2: the similarities between that story and some of the acrobatics involved with the with like Bethune related materials too is, is really quite striking just the the way in which five or six different parties kind of all have a competing claim to uh, to hold on to these these documents and it's never entirely clear and then up to and including the the almost spiteful donation of documents to an archive like that's, <laughs> it's just such a good it's such a good narrative <laughs> especially in the in the Bethune Bethune case there was one one uh, Spouse donated, like, all these files to Toronto Public Libraries after a, like, really nasty divorce. Oh, and really? Yeah, yeah. And, then, <laughs> and, that, and that resulted in, actually, a whole bunch of access to these files that wouldn't have been had otherwise, so it was pretty, oh. <laughs> yeah. <Anyway. laughs>
1: well, the, the Bethune Will is a good example of that, where there's just this document written in Chinese that's sitting in a lobby in a hospital in China. Right. And the will presumably was never acted on because Lillian was actually in the will. Edward Cecil Smith's wife, Lillian Gouge, was in the will. She was supposed to get a large Japanese flag. She never got it. I don't think anyone ever got anything that was articulated in the will. There were other things going
2: on. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and There always are. And it's also, <laughs> I mean, Bethune, you know, was not exactly a linguist either, so I <laughs> can't imagine he penned it himself. But uh... yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's I think maybe his uh, interpreter jotted it down in his easiest language, or you know, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not the original. That's pretty clear.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. We have a couple other questions about either the standard theater or kind of the legal aspect of things. If you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the um, the standard theater article that you uh, wrote recently, you kind of referenced the the history of of the repression against. the the Yiddish theater in Toronto, but um, I'd be interested to hear a little more about it if you wouldn't mind.
1: Yeah. So the standard theater, how did I come to find out about it? So the standard theater is the theater in which eight men speak was performed. Eight men speak is a play that Edward Cecil Smith and three other authors wrote, which is, a, about the arrest of the Communist Party leadership, and B, the incident where a guard shot into the cell of Tim Buck, the secretary of the Communist Party of Canada, which was understandably viewed by the party as being a attempted political assassination. So they identified that Fighting this in the courts wasn't really working. Um, Fighting it through any other lobbying, legal means wasn't working. So the best way to go about it was a court of public opinion. So they wrote this play. It was performed precisely once in the 30s because all three levels of government took action to make sure that it would never be performed again. And uh, then they tried to perform it in Winnipeg and the police cracked down on it there too. So I became very interested in the play and and the theater in which it was performed. And the more I learned, the more interesting it became. Basically, it was the first purpose-built Yiddish theater in Canada. It's at Dundas and Spadina. It was constructed through a crowdfunding initiative, we call it today, raising money in the community. The Jewish community hired a Jewish architect, Benjamin Brown, to build it. When it was up, they created, well, they didn't create it, they assembled um, an orchestra, a house orchestra that worked there. They had their own uh, costume designers, which wasn't probably very difficult given that the garment district was right around the corner. But they really created a community space that transcended the divisions that existed between Jewish people from different parts of Eastern Europe. Although they're sometimes lumped together as all being one and the same, there was a difference between those from Lithuania and those from Ukraine. They still had a different culture, even in some ways, even though they had a great deal in common. So the Standard Theatre gave them this amazing space, a 1,500-person theatre to do community things and put on plays and musical performances and celebrate high holidays. So that would be a great story in its own right. Then you've got the eight men speak thing. You also have the fact that Emma Goldman, the anarchist, lived pretty much across the street and did a number of speaking engagements there. And the other thing that happened was in 1929, there was a order from the police board that in public halls, uh, speeches could not be made in languages other than English. It's pretty absurd, and the court did eventually strike it down, and it didn't have any real legal bearing, but it was an order from the police. So it was the fifth year um, anniversary of, uh, of Lenin's death, as I recall. So they had a rally, and they advertised the rally. The Communist Party of Canada advertised the rally in sort of the, the usual languages of the, the cultural groups that were most closely associated So there was a, you know, the invitation was written in Ukrainian, Finnish, Yiddish, English, etc. The Red Squad attended. The police came, a dozen or so uniformed officers, a couple of uh, suit and tie police detectives, and probably some undercover officers as well. And they directed Tim Buck that no language other than English will be spoken here. Then one of the speakers did speak in Yiddish. The police arrested them and ordered the manager to drop the curtain. And then a man in the audience stood up on his chair and just began speaking Yiddish. We don't have a record of what it was he said exactly. He was arrested. Then the crowd became a bit raucous and tear gas was used in the theater to disperse the crowd. The the Newspaper reports make it pretty clear that tear gas was used. The police denied that they used tear gas, although they admitted that they had tear gas. And then there was a back and forth about, is this an order the police can actually make? Ultimately, it was decided no. So the chief of police, uh, Denny Draper, walked the prohibition back and said that foreign languages cannot be used in a public hall where it's a Bolshevik rally. (laughs) right yeah which would still seem to me to be a pretty serious infringement of freedom of speech but i guess it was acceptable by the standards of the day so all this happened in the standard theater
2: and and broad definitions of what constitutes a bolshevik organization i'm sure yeah
0: especially when you can't understand what they're saying
1: (laughs) yeah exactly yes and uh the diversity of the police force was pretty limited back then right (laughs) it would be an un- it would be considered diverse if you had a police officer who wasn't a member of the orange order that would be your diversity. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: <laughs> one of the volunteers that we did like a special episode on tiny anderson they tried to recruit him to the police service in vancouver until they realized that he was like foreign yeah. like he was danish and they were like oh no not interested anymore
1: <laughs> right offers off the table yes yeah
2: the I think that I don't know if it was the standard theater incident or another similar one where I, I think it may have been in standard theater as well, where uh, Becky Buhe, I think her name was, was another prominent, like one of the, one of the most prominent women in the, the CPC in, in the 30s, where I think after that, that second guy stood up and started speaking Yiddish, she stood up and started yelling and said, you know, I don't speak Yiddish, but then like just had a stream of just like, expletives throw, thrown at the police yeah and then she i think she also got carted off so uh, yeah. yeah i think she specifically apologized for not speaking
1: yiddish like i'm sorry that
2: i can't contribute but here's my
1: yeah i'll do my best uh becky Buay comes up a lot in uh the rest of the story here actually her and cecil smith were ran a delegation that visited Buck in prison or tried to visit timbuk in prison after the shooting they were turned away. They were not allowed in. Bue um, was also the, one of the key leaders in the Friends of the Mackenzie Papano Battalion as an organization. And she was married to Tom Ewan. I'm not sure if they were actually married, but they were they were a couple for a while. He had two sons from a previous marriage, and both of them fought in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, right.
0: Bruce and somebody else. I feel like they come up a lot. Yeah, they do. Yeah.
2: And his daughter went to China with Bethune. And
1: his daughter went to China, yes. <laughs> the, the first family of Canadian communism. <laughs> 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 and it
2: would have been Gene Ewan's son was uh, one of the one of the people really most behind the push to get the Victoria Monument to the Macpaps built, okay, which is kind of wow. cool. Oh. We're, we're switching directions one, one more time here, uh, if, if you don't mind you reference your research about the legality of the volunteers traveling to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Would you mind kind of talking a little, you're, 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 we, we were joking, you're the first military historian we've had on the podcast. You're also the first lawyer. So could you talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the legality, I guess, and of traveling to Spain and how much kind of domestic and international politics uh, came into the, the Foreign Enlistment
1: Act? Okay, so the Foreign Enlistment Act was the, the, the statute in question. What's important to know about this was that although, as Canadians, we talk about confederation all the time, we were independent in 1867, in many ways we really were not for much longer. Uh, In 1931, we passed the British, passed the Statute of Westminster, and that gave Canada the right to create laws that covered its own foreign policy. We could control our own foreign policy. And since 1931, until when the Spanish Civil War broke out, there was this slow process of taking old British laws that were still law in Canada and rewriting them or modifying them to be more relevant to modern Canadian circumstances. And this was sort of a popular thing to do. It was perceived as as being a positive step forward, not so much for celebrating our independence, as much as it was uh, like a modernization and updating things. So you could look at the same phenomena and different people would see different reasons why it was, why it was a good thing. So the Foreign Enlistment Act was a British statute that we inherited that was still on the books when the Spanish civil war broke out. And it covered things like a, a British subject, which included a Canadian national. Of traveling abroad to fight in a war in which Britain and the Empire was neutral. There's a whole bunch of other things, but that was that for our purposes, that's the main thing the law articulated. So this was done under through the lens of neutrality law. Right? We want to keep Britain neutral in this conflict, so we don't want Britain's British subjects travelling and fighting in it anyway. We want the state to be able to control which conflicts we're in, not our citizens are, Subjects dragging us into them. So the British ultimately made the decision, and I think they had to, because by January 1937, the volunteerism in the UK was just so overt and public. Because there was the Communist Party of Great Britain that was doing it, and they were doing it fairly overtly. And you also had the Independent Labour Party, which George Orwell was part of their contingent. They were organizing their stuff pretty overtly as well. So the British took the most expeditious route where they publicly declared that the Foreign Enlistment Act applies to the situation in Spain. Now, from a legal point of view, that wasn't quite true because the law did not seem to be written to cover off civil wars. It was written to cover off state versus state wars. So in Canada, where our prime minister was a lawyer, and our minister of justice was obviously a lawyer, and there was this desire to create a Canadian law to cover international things, they looked at that and said, you'd never be able to get a prosecution under this law. And it's a good thing for us to make a Canadian law. And the third element was that Maurice Duplessis, the premier of Quebec, uh, had recently started to agitate against the role the Communist Party of Canada was playing in getting Canadians to Spain. Describing it as this, this insidious plot, they're, they're taking our native sons, and they're growing in strength, etc., etc. So there was lots of good reasons to make the Canadian law that would cover Spain. So we did, that law was passed on April 20th, 1937, which means that before April 20th, so when Cecil Smith and the first batch went over, they were apparently not in violation of any law because that law had been repealed. April 20th, going onward, recruiting was a crime. So what the Communist Party was doing, that was a criminal act. But volunteering wasn't. Volunteering didn't become a crime until that was activated by an order in council in July. So the order in council says that this law applies in the Spanish Civil War. So the law wasn't active for civil wars unless it was activated by an order in council. That didn't happen until July. So between April and July, it was illegal to recruit but not to volunteer. After July, it was a crime to both recruit and to volunteer. So you can see why this detail gets missed a lot because most of the books just say there was a foreign enlistment act and they missed the fact of that it didn't apply the whole time and it only applied to certain acts. I don't I have found no record that there was ever any serious intention of prosecuting the volunteers themselves under this act. The goal always seemed to be to find a way, now that the Communist Party of Canada was legal, because Section 98 had been repealed by Mackenzie King, but you could get them for the recruiting effort, which was illegal, and no one else was doing it. And there was an RCMP investigation launched, and it went went quite far. It went far enough that the inspector, Xana, went from coast to coast, prepared all the warrants, issued the warrants, put the warrants in sealed envelopes. So in each major city, in each of these RCMP detachment, if you were in Winnipeg, you had a sealed envelope, and when you were given the order, you would open the envelope and it would have the warrants for the arrests of the Western Clarion's office and the local friends of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion and the people that would identified as running the recruiting efforts.
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Right. And those were all written up. The prosecutors had been hired because you used to have to hire prosecutors. They didn't have a giant staff of uh, prosecutors, always working just for the federal government. And then the Aragon offensive happened. Then the Spanish Republic was on the ropes. It looked like they were going to lose and it was decided that it would be a bad political move to do any action against the volunteers and their recruiters. It also happened to coincide with the death of the RCMP superintendent, uh, James Howden McBrien. Uh, commissioner, sorry. Um, and the, the new guy, Stuart Wood, was not really interested in, in pushing this rope uphill. He, he saw it as a political disaster in the making, recommended and the minister of justice accepted that we should not pursue these uh, prosecutions and no further action was taken
2: that's really interesting especially given the respectability of i I guess i would even go as far to say the respectability of the communist party in this period compared to earlier during like the section 98 debacle just like the, the popular front initiatives did kind of penetrate into the middle classes in a lot of ways that like i'm sure it would have been just such a mess to try to 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 parse all that out and figure out exactly who you were going to charge and who you weren't and then like mm-hmm. even their fundraising capabilities would have been just so much greater at that at that point than they would have been you know a few years earlier and it's kind of it, just interesting to think about yeah the extent to which it probably would have been a political disaster
1: at this point, their relationship with the cooperative Commonwealth Federation was actually functional. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas at the beginning, from the CCS founding until really the Spanish Civil War, they were they were just at loggerheads. Yeah. Social fascists. With the Spanish Civil War, they they found a lot of common ground. They found a lot that they could agree on. They found a lot that they could work together on. You know, it started with Bethune, and although the CCF was never big on uh, sending volunteers to fight in Spain, they were quite happy to organize and coordinate and to help out in lots of other ventures. And the CCF had elected officials, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I am curious about how this research helps you think about fascism and anti fascism today.
1: Yes. That's the, I think that might be the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if you study the 1930s, reading the newspaper is sort of a harrowing experience these days. There's just far too much that, uh, that echoes the past. I would say that my main lesson from all of this research, in terms of how it applies to what we see today, is that we don't do ourselves any favors if we ignore how scared people can be. Uh, It's really important, I think, to build empathy with groups that even if you completely disagree with their conclusions, if you don't take the time and energy to sort of understand how they come to that conclusion and how much of it is motivated by fear, fear of the other, fear of people Replacing them, taking their jobs, not acknowledging the identity that they hold really dear, I think you can run into uh, a lot of trouble. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing that the uh, a lot of these this uh, nativism and anti-immigration and anti-communism, anti-socialism, anti-communism isn't really a, a thing anymore. But you know, fear of uh, progressive policies and adjustments to hierarchies and whatnot, um, I think I have a lot more empathy for where that fear comes from, and I don't know how you work through it, how you address it without validating it, because in my opinion, those fears are are wrong, but they come from somewhere. They come from somewhere important. So for us, even if you don't look at the Spanish Civil War, um, if you're not concerned with the communist elements of it, most people would at least sympathize with the anti-fascist aspects of it. But from the other point of view, you'll still run into people in Spain who don't view Franco as being a fascist. They view him as being an Mm anti-communist. That Franco did a lot of bad things, but he kept the communists out, so that's good enough for us. So I think that's the best that I can offer of, of what I've learned is that people are really motivated by deeply seated fears and if we don't address that they entrench and we'll go with whoever the guy is who is addressing their fears. That's the closest I can answer without naming names.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Delicately put. Yeah, that. Yeah, that, that is interesting that and, and it's one of those things where the span, particularly like the Spanish domestic context in the 1930s is not quite as illustrative as considering, I would say, maybe the Canadian context or, or elsewhere. Like the just so, so many of the motivations of of the, the nationalist or fascist like, forces or supporters are just like inscrutable to us today in a lot of ways, like, like particularly that sort of like Catholic nationalism that like doesn't doesn't yeah. really ring any. Or isn't familiar, I guess, to us in any any sense. But, but the, yeah, some of the more the more nativist elements in maybe the Canadian context in the '30s are are a little more familiar, and mm-hmm. more more lessons to be learned from the anti-fascists than uh, than studying the fascists, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Thank we'll
0: you be... so much for talking to us.
2: Yeah, and our our, our scattered line of questioning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: happy to do it, and maybe we'll do it again sometime.
0: That was Tyler Wenzel talking to us about his research on military history and legal history around the Spanish Civil War and the 1930s. You can find out more about Tyler and his work and any of the things we referenced in today's podcast in our show notes at SpanishCivilWar.ca podcast. Today's episode was written by Kevin Lavangi, recorded and produced by Karina Mickelson and Kevin Lavangi and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our intro music is Libertad by Iriarte and Pazoa, and our outro music was an instrumental version of The Internationale. To get in touch with us or find out more about our project, you can find us online, SpanishCivilWar.ca, or on Twitter, at CanadaSCW. We've got quite a few episodes coming down the pipeline, so I'm not sure what will be next, but join us in the future for conversations about Spanish Civil War novels, uh, conversations about the military experience of Spanish Civil War volunteers and other wars they fought in and went on to fight in, and probably a whole bunch more. So listen in.